This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and this week we are in conversation uh, with Regan Ralph. Now, Regan is the president and CEO of the Fund for Global Human Rights, which is a really interesting organisation, a grant-making organisation, that I only came across relatively recently or became sort of properly aware of and was put in touch with some people who work with Regan, who subsequently put me in touch with her, and it was great to have the chance to talk. Um, And the Fund for Global Human Rights kind of focuses, as the name might suggest, on funding human rights issues around the world, but it does so sort of primarily by supporting movement building and kind of grassroots activism and people who listen to the podcast will know that's something I'm uh, extremely interested in and um, so it's great to have a chance to chat to Regan um, as somebody who's sort of been doing this in practice for quite a number of years now and get her thoughts on some of the challenges and what she'd learned. Um, so we had a good conversation about what the fund did. We talked about uh, the sort of basic question of what we're actually talking about when we when we say social movements and how that term is used differently by different people. We talked about what it actually meant for a funder to try and support movement building and what the different parts of that ecosystem might look like. Um, that led us on to talk about the sort of power dynamics that are inherent between foundation funders particularly and philanthropists and movements and how both the kind of active uh, process of choosing to focus on organisations that that adopt safe tactics or those that are seen as being sufficiently formal or mainstream can skew movements but even the sort of unconscious process of selecting particular organisations or areas of focus within an overall movement can have a distorting effect and, and what a funder needs to do if they're sort of aware of that danger of co-optation or or movement capture. Um, We also uh, talked about the sort of um, questions like measurement uh, and whether the desire to uh, kind of have measurable metrics um, of, uh, of impact were something that had held back funding for movements because actually the sorts of things that add value in a movement are not necessarily the sorts of things that are captured in most systems of measurement and whether that had led too many foundation funders to kind of shy away from from longer term funding for things where the impact might be much more difficult um, to assess in that sort of way. Um, We talked about the question of whether uh, funders can actually bring something positive to the table alongside the money in terms of the legitimacy that they can offer to a grassroots organisation simply through association or actually whether that could be two sides of a coin and on the other side actually being associated with a a funder in in some cases for an organization for example in the global south might be problematic and get them in trouble with their own government we talked about uh whether or not um the the question at the moment within the pandemic um that we've seen lots of foundations accept that core cost funding and longer term funding is something that they need to engage with more and get away from shorter term and programmatic funding, whether that could if, uh, in the longer term benefit movements because that's precisely the sort of funding that they need. We talked about the particular phenomenon of leaderless movements which is obviously a big area of focus at the moment and something I love to talk about as people might know um, and getting Regan's thoughts on what the particular challenges of engaging with those sorts of movements that don't necessarily have kind of traditional formal hierarchical structures might be. And then we talked um, about the sort of fundamental question of philanthropy's role in funding social change and the challenge of whether philanthropy and the institutions within it are too too often um, reflective of the existing systems and structures within society and therefore are limited in their ability to pursue truly uh, fundamental or transformative change and what her take on that was. And so without further ado, let's go into the conversation. Um, I hope you enjoy it. I certainly did. And I will be back at the end for a little bit of housekeeping and tidying up. Okay, great. So I'm here with Regan Ralph. Hi, Regan. 
Hello, Rod. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And uh, Regan is the president and CEO of the Fund for Global Human Rights. Um, maybe the best starting point, really, um, before we kind of get into a conversation all about kind of funding social movements and, and rights, um, would be for you to say a bit about what the fund is, how it came about and, and what you do there. So the Fund for Global Human Rights was started just about 17 years ago by a group of donors, both in North America and in Europe, who were interested in moving more financial resources into the hands of frontline human rights activists working in countries around the world where they didn't have a lot of access to resources. And so I came in um, with a background in, in human rights advocacy, um, with the desire to be a part of moving not only the resources, but also the power that attaches those to those resources into the hands of local actors. Uh, the idea being that those are the actors whose lives are most affected by human rights conditions and who have the greatest stake and probably um, some of the best ideas for how to promote the interests of their communities. So with seed funding, we started funding in three regions of the world, um, doing direct grant making to or human rights organizations uh, in Latin America, West Africa, and South Asia at that point. We've expanded geographically since then, but we've ha we've kept some of our key principles, which are to provide general operating support um, as much as possible and to provide long-term support for organizations to give them a chance to build their capacity and their, um, and their ability to make an impact. And what I do at the fund is I started the organization with, like I said, the seed funding from these donors um, and since then have built the organization and we now have people based all over the world living and working in the communities where we fund and it's still my job um, to work with my colleagues to make sure that we get the resources into the hands of those activists. Um, we are nowhere near meeting the demand, but I am very excited to say that we have, since we started, given away uh, just over $100 million to hundreds of human rights organizations working across the world and have seen in, you know, incredible consequences for the work that they, uh, as a result of the work that they've been doing. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating to hear about it because there's, there's a lot of focus, it feels, right now in the kind of wider world of philanthropy on the question of how philanthropic funders engage with and support movements and some of the sort of opportunities and challenges that brings. So the fact that, you know, that's kind of what you started out doing and have been doing it over over the last 15 years, I think is is fascinating. There's a lot I want to, to pick up on um, in, in what you've just said and, and kind of taking it, it on from there. I mean, I guess one question is, is just to sort of pick in a, a bit more into what actually funding a social movement looks like from a, from a funder's point of view, because um, it feels as though there there are kind of lots of different elements of movement building and kind of uh, strengthening movements that that one could identify and it might be everything as you say from kind of at the very grassroots building organizational capacity and kind of building the movement but then also doing policy work and and legal work and um and kind of advocacy what you know do you kind of work across all of those what's your sort of take on on how you kind of identify the different elements and, and balance them well, so I think probably we should start by um, having um, a wonky definitional moment um, because I think social movements mean different things to different people. And, and I, I think particularly in the popular imagination right now, people think of social movements as people spontaneously turning up in the streets to demand change. You know, whether you look at the uh, Arab Spring or movements that have played out since then, um, things that are happening across the world right now, Belarus uh, springs to mind. A lot of people, I think, associate, and clearly all of the demonstrations that are happening in the U.S., in the United States and elsewhere around the world, uh, protesting systemic racial inequality. That's, I think, what a lot of people think of when they think of social movements. We think, um, our, our perspective is that we sort of sit at the intersection of social movements and civil society. So by that, I mean, I think that you know, those spontaneous movements are, are often not as spontaneous as they look when you see people um, turning up in the streets because it takes organization to get people to sh show up um, and to um, come together. But but I, but I also think that it's important to think about how we strengthen civil society because in every country around the world, you have powerful actors, whether they're governments or corporations or others who have, who hold quite a bit of power. And a part of our idea is that supporting those organizations that working collaboratively, collectively, um, 
et cetera, can build the kind of power to hold those actors in, accountable. That's really kind of what we're about. Um, it's looking at how you create systemic change by challenging institutions of power, particularly when they're abusive, but, but definitely really looking at what are the inequalities and injustices that they perpetuate simply by the way they do business. And so for us, what that means is looking um, across, you know, multiple actors using multiple modalities um, and coming from different traditions. So if you look at a place like Honduras, for example, where we fund a lot of work on land rights and resource rights. Honduras, as you may know, is one of the most, has been labeled one of the most dangerous countries in the world in which to be an environmental rights activist. And that means that there's a lot at stake and there are a lot of different needs that communities have in order to challenge the interests of both their government and the actors that are coming in to take advantage of the natural resources that that are in Honduras. And so there we fund com uh, community-based organizations that are about helping people understand what their rights are, uh, bringing them together to come up with what their what their need, to identify what their needs are so that they can press their case. We also, um, support those organizations that are in Tegucigalpa, the capital, to make sure that they are pressing for the policies at the at the national level that will help protect and promote the, the interests of these communities. Um, and then we are and we're also funding organizations um, that are operating in between those two, the sort of the extremes of those two, you know, elite capital-based advocacy organization um, down to community-based groups identifying and, and demanding their needs. Um, and and some of those might look like the kinds of social movements that people think about when they think about demonstrations and spontaneous outbreaks, but really what they are is an ecosystem. Uh, it's an ecosystem that is about advancing the agenda of the organizations. They're working in collaboration, but they're not all trying to be all things to all people. And I think that's what we have found to be the most effective in terms of both promoting change and, and then securing change. And then on the backside, um, making sure that it, that kind of change is sustainable and actually put into practice. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting to to hear because I think you're. I mean, that point about actually the the intersection between what people perceive as social movements and civil society is really important because actually it's that existing infrastructure of civil society that usually provides the the oxygen or the the opportunity for that that more sort of public face of, of social movements to occur. Um, one thing I, I wondered as you were talking there. I mean, one of the challenges you hear sometimes when people are speaking about the uh, the question of philanthropic funding for social movements is the risk that funders, um, even sort of very well intentioned, the, the the sort of the process of selecting uh, based on particular kind of organisational types within an overall ecosystem um, for, of a social movement, that itself kind of skews a movement potentially towards more formalised structures or towards organisations adopting kind of less uh, aggressive or confrontational tactics. Do you do you sort of have to to sense check against some of those dangers that actually? In, in doing things with the best of intentions as a funder, you still sort of recognize that you carry a responsibility to, 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 to make sure that you aren't distorting that movement. Yeah, I would say not only is that a risk, it's sort of a, a, a classic philanthropic move. Um, and there is a long history of well-intentioned philanthropic actors changing the direction and priorities of social change movements um, in a direction that for whatever reason they have found more important to fund. And in fact, in the early days of the fund, we were talking you know, about how to get started. What do we fund? How do we fund? And it was very much the trend at that point in progressive philanthropy to, to fund, and, and probably still is with many donors, but to fund thematically. So you fund women's rights, or you fund children's rights, or you fund efforts to fight trafficking. Uh, but you don't go in and let other and let the organizations on the ground tell you what their priorities are because that sort of feels too chaotic and diffuse. And we said, no, actually, since um, what we're saying is that we want them to tell us what the priorities are, we're not going to go in telling them what the priorities should be. And I remember an early conversation I had with a 
the head of a Mexican human rights organization that's actually a network of, of organizations spread across the country. And the, 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 we had just started the fund. It was maybe a year and a half old. And I was in Mexico for the first time in my life. And I met with this um, human rights leader and said, you know, what are your priorities? What are you working on? And he ran me through the different things that they are working on. And then he said, so what are your priorities for the coming year? What, are, what can I tell you about our work that matches your priorities? And I said, okay, maybe I'm going to need to say this more than once, but I actually asked you about your priorities because that's what our priorities are. Like whatever you think needs to be worked on in the human rights context of Mexico, then that's what we'll fund in, in the human rights context in Mexico. And so there's definitely a history of donors coming in sort of steering organizations to a particular set of issues or, or priorities and or organizations tailoring what they know they want to do to meet the expectations of donors. And I think um, that that is, so it's not just a risk, it's a reality. And the way to change that is to listen. I mean, it's a very basic idea, but it's remarkable how infrequently it's practiced um, is to actually ask the questions about what the priorities are and then to listen to them and to respect the expertise of the people that are telling you what their priorities are, because really they're in the best position to know what they are. Um, and they're also in the best position to know how to advance what their priorities are. They just need the resources to be able to do it. Um, and uh, I mean, I could give you so many examples of how and why that works, but um, one, one of my favorites is um, uh, another story from Latin America. Again, in the early days of the fund, I went with a group of donors to Guatemala um, to learn more about the human rights uh, movement there, the different actors, the issues, etc. And at one point we were meeting with a group of indigenous leaders um, in a remote part of Guatemala, and they were talking about fighting mining as uh, a development strategy in Guatemala. The Guatemalan government had entered into a lot of really exploitative uh, mining agreements with outside mining companies which translated into zero benefits for the local communities. Um, and at that point, a lot of the mining was for gold in Guatemala, and they used a technique for finding the gold that is called cyanide leach mining, which I, you don't even need me to explain what that means to know that it can't possibly be good. And it was a way- It doesn't sound no, good. No, not at all. And it was, you know, contaminating the groundwater, which um, made, which the people depended upon for their livelihoods and their lives. And because the communities were resistant to the outside mining. Uh, the, the mines weren't even hiring local people. They were bringing people from outside. And they were doing the equivalent often of strip mining, which is just destroying the natural environment, not just the groundwater, but everything else. And so needless to say, the communities did not find this to be a viable development strategy. But the government wasn't interested in that. And what the donors were saying to these, I mean, the well-intentioned progressive donors, mostly from the United States on that particular trip, were saying was, you're never going to beat these guys. They're way too powerful. So what your, your emphasis should be on trying to negotiate more benefits for your communities. And the, and the indigenous group said, nope, that's not what we're interested in. There's no way that this turns out to be a win for us. And so our goal is to stop them altogether. And I just watched these and, and, I, and I found myself sympathizing with the donors who were saying, there's no way you're going to win this. Those actors have way too much power. Well, fast forward 15 years and guess what? They pursued their own strategy. They, they stuck to um, their guns on uh, defying um, protesting against mining as a, as, a as a development strategy. And they used a whole range of tools. I mean, traditional protests, they blocked uh, access to the to the sites they challenged um, at the at the national level what the government was doing the policy of encouraging outside mining companies to invest in Guatemala uh, and they also did a city by city municipality by municipality uh, work of educating local government leaders to say look you don't just have to sit with this, there are actually international protections which require local communities to give their full informed and prior consent before you can do things like this. So you can actually consult with the community and have the community decide whether it's interested in this or not. And so 
those local municipalities did exactly that. They held consultations, they held votes, they held referenda, and more often than not, the communities rejected mining, and the mines ultimately decided, even though the Supreme Court of Guatemala unfortunately decided that those um, referenda were not necessarily binding, they caused so much trouble for the mining companies that they threw up their hands and walked away because it just wasn't worth it for them. And I just think that that's an amazing example um, that challenges donors to think and to think about why they enter these conversations with local organizations and movement organizations with an assumption that they know what's most likely to work uh, and, and underscores the importance of listening to local organizations about what their agenda should be and how likely they are to succeed. It's a fascinating example, and I think that sort of underlying question of the the tension between pragmatism or sort of perceived pragmatism and what might be perceived as uh, you know unreasonable idealism is is such an important one it feels for that whole conversation between funders and movements and feels like you know a very sort of a uh, timely question um and, and as you say actually sometimes that that pragmatism as it's perceived is actually misplaced and and they're just kind of not really imagining you know uh, truly what what's possible um one thing i was wondering actually in in those situations say a funder like yourselves that has kind of recognized some of those challenges and is is genuinely trying to shift power by devolving uh devolving it down to to the grassroots or having a kind of more participatory approach to to decision making do do you still try to sort of retain some uh oversight or play a role there in kind of sense checking what a community might themselves decide only i ask it only on the basis that empowering a community to decide for themselves what their priorities are and to address them seems like the desirable end goal but if you happen to know from working with other movements elsewhere that actually the tactics they're using are perhaps you know potentially less successful than other tactics or that they could be best deployed elsewhere do you try to sort of work with them to advise them on that without steering them so there are many layers to the question that you just asked so i'm going to try and unpack them in some way that um makes some sort of sense. So I would say that the first thing is to understand how we work. Uh, so the, the, the staff of the fund, uh, the program staff are all based in and mostly come from the human rights communities that they are now working with as a funder. And I think that that's a really important thing to know. So it means that they're not having one conversation a year. We we use a model that is now often referred to as accompaniment, which means that our program officers are working in concert with the organizations that they support. Often the organizations will approach them about ideas they have or want to see if we might fund a, a, some kind of convening when one can do those sorts of things uh, to bring people together. Often they're interested in the experiences of people from other places. I was just actually looking on Slack this morning at an exchange between a number of my colleagues because as you may have heard, uh, two Burmese soldiers have have recently come forward to identify um, their role and the role of others in perpetrating uh, genocide against the Rohingya in Burma in recent years. And a number of my colleagues chimed in to say, oh, well, there's lots of examples of this happening in other places and how in some places it's really influenced the public conversation about what happened and what needs to be done about it. And there's so much eagerness to learn from those experiences that you know, the, the organizations that my program um, colleagues are working with are, are reading ahead of us in terms of learning from, from their colleagues in other countries and where we can, we're, we're facilitating trends to make that even more possible. So I would say there's a real hunger for that, but at the same time, and, and that it's something that happens uh, organically because of the constant working relationship of the program officers with the organizations that we're funding. And I think that that, again, it, in some ways it feels very much just like common sense, but it's also, it was a very intentional decision on our part uh, not to have people outside the context making the decisions and to have, um, to have people in, in regular conversation with the organizations that we support. And I um, have multiple stories about how 
that manifests itself and the and the kind of relationship that people have so that the grantees are actually coming to me and to other people at the organization to tell us how important this model has been and how invaluable and their allies at the Fund for Global Human Rights are um, in ways that make me um, very proud of what we've accomplished as an organization in building those relationships of trust. So there's that. But then there's also the fact that because we do fund globally, we do know that there are different things going on in different parts of the world. And so what we do is make that information available um, and ask people. And if they are interested in following up, we try to figure out a way to facilitate that and bring and bring organizations together. And that is a that is a role that we can play that um, we can play because of where we sit um, and the fact that we are an intermediary funder. So we can bring those resources to, to those opportunities uh, in ways that would be much more difficult for the organizations that we fund. But at the end of the day, I think that our goal re really is to foster the political agency of the local communities rather than to offer a fixed solution that we shop from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, if you will, uh, because then they're the ones who are asking for the resources. They're the ones who are expressing interest in learning from others, and they're the ones who are determining how it will move forward. It's Yeah, that's I mean, it's a really interesting interesting way of, of outlaying it. I, I mean, one, one question there at the end, you're talking about sort of fostering the political agency of, of the local communities. And, and again, I think it's it absolutely, you know, as, as the ambition feels like the right one. I always wonder, this is sort of occasion a slightly sort of thorny question about from a funder's point of view of, are there limits of, of the extent to which you're comfortable with that? Are there any points at which the, those communities could make decisions or do things with that funding that you would disagree with and at that point would with the sort of principle of well it is it you know it's their agency and that's what they've decided to do would that sort of trump the any any sort of uh, question on your part of saying actually do you know what in this in this circumstance we ha have a view on that not being an appropriate thing to do with the money do you do you ever have you ever found yourself in that situation you know that is a really interesting question and i think you know assuming that we're not talking about illegal activities um although honestly in some places that we fund that just the basic work of being a civil society organization and advocating for human rights is construed by governments as being illegal um and and in that case, we probably um, would draw a slightly different line. But, I, you know, I can't think of an instance where I've, I've learned that organizations that we're supporting are using tactics or pursuing strategies that are for any reason either unacceptable to us or even undesirable. Um, I mean, obviously there's a lot of experimentation and things don't always work out the way organizations want them to. But, you know, by the time we start a funding relationship with an organization, we usually know them pretty well. Um, and that means we're in conversation with them already. And so the idea that, um, there's a wild card in there that we wouldn't anticipate is not something that uh, we spend a lot of time worrying about. And, and I do, and I do think, so on the one hand, you know, the only thing that I could, I guess what I'm saying is the only thing I could imagine that would worry me is something that is way off of um, the sort of planned trajectory of, of the work that organizations are doing. And that just doesn't happen very often. I mean, there are definitely situations where organizations are pivoting to adapt to changing circumstances um, or realities on the ground. But they almost always do it, if they're going to change the way they're working, they almost always do it in consultation with their colleagues who are program officers at the fund. Um, so on that on that score, I don't, I don't have any concerns whatsoever. And on the question that I think you may be asking, which is, you know, are we ever tempted to second guess how the organizations that we support organize their strategies or their priorities? Uh, the answer is no. And I think that that is, again, it's about... Um, we start from a place of assuming that the organizations that we're supporting are in the best position to make those calls. And so, and we also support, we start from the assumption that we're going to have to be doing experimentation if we're actually going to make change. And so that means not everything's going to work the way you want it to. Um, and that's for us as well as for the organizations that we support. But I don't, I don't actually worry about, if I understand your question correctly, I don't worry about um, us needing to come in and sort of suggest that maybe there's a different way to do that. And again, if I'm ever tempted down that road, I think about that moment of listening to those organizations say that they were going to challenge mining as a development strategy and thinking, wow, 
is that really even possible? Um, but we funded them to do it and they did it. So, you know, that's not every story plays out that way, but the possibility that it might is worth the investment. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. And I realize my, my question probably contained a number of different elements. And I think you've absolutely answered it there. I guess I was part of what I was thinking was this this question. And I don't think, you know, on your part, particularly, I think more broadly within philanthropy of the, the difficulty of genuinely sort of putting aside all funder ego. And I guess the thought experiment to me, probably outside of the, the realm of, of human rights and more sort of broadly is, and a funder that is trying to shift towards a model where they kind of empower people to to seek and deliver their own solutions and away from an idea of kind of coming up with thematic programs and implementing them if if they found themselves in the situation where they gave the resources to a community to uh, to deliver something for themselves and it was producing measurably worse outcomes in terms of say health or something than than what the funder themselves would would recommend doing are they willing to accept that slightly lower health outcome in order to get the benefit of increased agency and and uh, and kind of being more democratic in what they do or at that point would they feel tempted to kind of switch back to the old model where they imposed you know their, their best solution on the community um and i guess if you're funding human rights as your kind of core mission you probably don't get into that that uh, that kind of challenge because you're fundamentally you know part empowering communities is, is sort of central to what you do but in some other areas it strikes me it might be uh something that kind of limits the the willingness of funders to to give away power yeah i i certainly think it i think the the difficulty in trusting grantees to make good decisions is uh, a factor that a lot of folks in philanthropy wrestle with. And I, but, and I, yes, it's easier for us in the human rights space to say, well, this is a part of why we do what we do. I mean, this is one of our outcomes, if you will. But I, I guess I really wonder about, um, I really wonder whether a part of the assumptions underlying the question about donors having, you know, a certain set of expectations about deliverables on a grant that they that they're providing doesn't tie into at some level the the conversation that's happening in philanthropy right now about how donors set the agenda and what that means for what the agenda looks like and what that means for what the desired outcomes are and i'm not trying to be opaque here but i'm i'm really talking about power and um, and what what power donors retain for themselves and what the stories are that they tell themselves about why it's legitimate to retain that power. And I think that's that's I, I think we're in sort of an assumption questioning moment right now in philanthropy and in the world in general. And I think that's one of the things that um, donors really need to spend some time doing some self-interrogation on regardless of their field. Uh, because yes, you know, if you're sitting at a large Northern foundation and you have access to all kinds of studies and resources that a local organization in Tanzania doesn't have access to, you might be seeing things and coming up with uh, ways of measuring things. But I guess at the end of the day, my question is, what are you trying to change? And a lot of what we see in the field and the places that we fund is that large whether they're donors or international organizations will work with local organizations, but they treat them like implementing partners. So all the thinking is done someplace else, all the decision-making is done someplace else, and they effectively retain these local organizations to do the work on the ground. And you might make a big change in terms of numbers by with that kind of an institutional model, but what do you leave behind and how much have you challenged the structures that deliver, since you use healthcare as an example, you know, public health care, how, how much have you changed the structures that resulted in the inequities that created the problems in the first place? So that's why I'm a little bit resistant to the idea that there is a place where it's legitimate for donors to say, look, we know how to do this best. We're going to second guess you because we want to bring you into the fold here. And I'm not saying that might it might never be possible that that sort of exchange of perspectives might result in something um, that's really valuable. But um, 
I do think that the idea that turning that agency and or, or promoting agency and turning that power over to local organizations um, might not be as effective is something that we need to, at, at a minimum, challenge ourselves to examine uh, whether that's really a legitimate perspective. Oh, absolutely. I certainly didn't mean to suggest for a second I thought that was yeah. a legitimate point of view. I guess I think it's I suppose I mean I sort of raise it because it strikes me as the sort of thought pattern that you probably would find in in plenty of funders still, although I do feel as you say that there is a, a conversation going on that is kind of bringing a lot of these issues um to light. And and maybe the I mean, just to build on that, the one practical way in which we we see that being demonstrated touches on something you were saying there, which is around measurement. Um, and certainly one of the things I've heard in terms of the the, the challenges that there have been perhaps historically with um, foundation funders uh, trying to fund movements is that certainly over the last you know, 15, 20 years, the, the dominant paradigm has been very much one that is kind of you know, impact measurement or kind of quite rigid metrics that are set often by the funder and aligned to their thematic priorities. And, and those don't take into account as elements of value things like the additional agency that's given to, to the grantees or the communities that are, that are being funded. And because they're not being measured, they're not being valued. And so that skews the funding model and and my question really was in the work that you do it's sort of if that is an issue that you've you've acknowledged have you found other ways of measuring the impact or the value of of your funding so that you can track success but in a way that kind of captures everything you want to capture yeah this is a real challenge for for uh funders in the social justice space i think and i in particular coming out of the human rights community was extremely resistant to a lot of the you know log frame and and various other the early forms of evaluating success in this context one because i think you know human rights actors historically have seen evaluations of their effectiveness used to undermine their legitimacy in a political sense. Uh, and two, because it's so difficult to measure sometimes in, in, in ways that are quantifiable. But and j just to give an example of that, I remember in an early conversation that I had with a European government donor about deliverables and measurement, they were asking about how how we would know whether uh, an approach of providing legal support to women who were victims of domestic violence would was actually making a difference. And I had a sort of a very qualitative conversation with them, and they said, no, 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 that's not what we want to know. How many women will bring cases as a result of the work that this, non this organization is doing? And I said, well, I have no way of knowing the answer to that question because I don't know how many, I don't know right now, I don't know what the rate of violence is in this community. I don't know how many clients the organization will have over the course of the year. I don't know how many of those clients will be willing to bring cases in the, in the legal system. And I certainly don't know what the outcome of that. And they said, well, it doesn't matter. Make up a number and then report to us based on what that number is. And I thought, well, what, you know, what's the value of that? What is that actually telling you? Um, so that was my early experience with measurement and evaluation. Um, but I, I will say that we struggled with that from the beginning because we wanted to tell the story of why it was so valuable to invest in these frontline human rights actors and how much potential they had to really change the conditions on the ground for their communities and beyond. And so we, and, you know, we're a nonprofit, we have to raise all the money that we give away. So we struggled with this because it's not an insignificant undertaking to design a model to really assess this, not, not only because we're doing work that's highly qualitative in some respects, but also because we're doing it in multiple country, country contexts. So the variables are many um, from place to place. And we wanted to be able to tell the story, not just about you know, the difference that land rights advocates in Mexico are making, but also about what access to justice looks like now in the world compared to what it looked like 15 years ago, thanks to the efforts of local human rights actors. And so we develop, we have actually worked with uh, people who are um, extremely skilled in navigating this territory to build some initial indicators of how 
whether our funding is actually achieving what we're hoping to achieve. Um, and that is, you know, looking at things like, does our emergency response system actually provide the kind of security and support that organizations need when they are under siege? Um, are we a feminist funder? Do we, does our funding manifest in feminist principles that organizations are able to embrace and pursue um, on their own terms? Um, are, you know, and and I and we're we're in the initial phases, but my hope is that we will be able to test not only does our grant making help organizations in the way we're hoping to help them, but also does the work that they're doing help them achieve the goals that they're setting out? Because I do think that that's an incredibly important story to tell, uh, to see the difference that these organizations make working on the front lines. Because, you know, I think a lot of people think that you do this kind of work because it's it's the right thing to do. It is important to get, help people um, act on, in their own best interests and control their own agendas. But I also don't want to be able to make the case that it is also one of the most effective strategies you could possibly employ. And to be able to do that, we have to be able to do more than just gather together five different stories from five different countries about success. We need to be able to look at the kind of funding that contributes to that success, uh, the, the the length of time it takes to accomplish that success. Because of course, especially in the human rights world, there are so many variables that are completely outside of the control of the actors that we're funding that determine the impact of the work that they do. So what are the different things that make a difference? And, and what does it look like to fund in a highly repressive environment as opposed to one that is relatively open? And what are the different variables of success in those different contexts? So I, I think it's important for us because we owe it to the activists that that we're supporting to be using the limited resources that we have in the most um, impactful way possible. And of course, we are responsible to our donors as well, uh, because that's what the, why they're funding us, is to make, be able to show that this, to be able to shore up this kind of work and help civil society and movements develop globally, but also to show the value of doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I was really, yeah, it's really interesting um, what you're saying there. I'm, I'm just thinking about something in terms of touching on what you're saying there and something you said earlier. And in terms of the the value that you as a funder bring, I mean, one one element obviously is is the money, but it seems you know another element is potentially the ability to sort of tell the story about the the value of this type of funding. I wondered whether you had any sense of whether you also brought a sort of symbolic power to the table so that, for instance, in kind of in funding a particular organisation or set of organisations above and beyond the money that, that you offered them, actually the fact that you were you were sort of choosing to support them, gave them additional legitimacy uh, or sort of strengthen their case? Or, or is it actually the converse that sometimes the association with a you know, Western funder is is actually problematic and they would rather people didn't know? Well, you, you will now be able to tell that I'm trained as a lawyer when I say uh, it's both. Um, so it's both and. So I, I mean, I've seen, we've seen everything from, and we tend to fund, so we occasionally will evaluate uh, the organizations that we support in terms of the percentage that our grant makes up of the support that they receive overall. And the vast majority of the grants that we give are between 25 and 100% of an organization's income. So that means that we're funding a lot of seed. We're seeding. We're, we're funding a lot of organizations. We're not seeding them. The ideas don't come from us, but we will get approached by uh, individuals or actors who say, "We have a great idea. We want to pursue this," um, or "We've been doing this for a while, but we haven't been able to get anybody to support us, and we will offer them their first grant." And our hope is that that will enable them to, and we, through our working with them, will be able to introduce them to other funders and expand the resources that are available to them, assuming that that is what they want. And many times that's the case for sure, but in other instances it's not. And I visited a couple of years ago an organization that we recently support, started supporting in Tunisia, which is called the Amal uh, Center for Social Development, which is based in Gafsa uh, in the southwestern part of Tunisia, which is where the uh, protests in Tunisia actually originated because it is a part of the country that is absolutely impoverished. And Gefsa, this particular town, is completely owned by the mining company there. Everybody works for the company. Their houses are owned by the company. The school, the, the, you know, the, the schools and the property the schools sit on is owned by the mining company. 
And that gives them a lot of say over how people are paid, the conditions under which people work and live, et cetera. And this is a local organization that wanted to build a community response to that and, and to negotiate on behalf of the community for better labor and living conditions. And we are, I believe, their first external funder and continue to be their only external funder because that's the way they want it. And the, the reason for that is because they do not want their agenda to be co-opted. They do not want their independence to be questioned. And they do they want to remain, by and large, a locally owned organization. So while our funding does help them and we give them general operating support, they collect membership dues, you know, they raise money from the community because it's their belief that that both spreads the word about their work and gets people to invest in it um, and to feel a sense of ownership over their own success. So I'm delighted to be able to support the work that they're doing because I think it frees them up to be able to do some things that are really important for them to be able to do. But I completely respect their sense that that's it. We don't we don't want the bigger funding, at least not for now, because we we see it as compromising um, the work that we're trying to do. So I do I do think that it's both. And then of course you also have at least in a human rights context there are organizations that we may be able to support in highly repressive environments that don't want anybody to know, um, well, want people to know as little as possible that they're receiving outside funding because that will be used as a cudgel against them. Um, they could be accused of being fifth columnists or having their agendas dictated by outside donors. And none of that's true when we're funding an organization, but we certainly don't want to be a PR problem for the groups that we are supporting. Yeah, no, I mean, a very, very balanced take on it. It's, yeah, I mean, it absolutely sort of strikes me. It can be be both things. So it's really interesting to to hear those examples. Um, I'm aware I'm in danger of, of keeping you all together too long. So I've just got a couple more questions I wanted to touch on. Um, one was you mentioned um, sort of right at the start that your in terms of your principles of funding, you've always from the outset had a focus on kind of core cost and multi-year funding. Um, and it feels at the moment like there's a lot of discussion about that much more widely in the foundation sector in light of the pandemic, I think possibly for more pragmatic reasons. Do you have optimism that this might be something that will stick within the wider funding world? And do you think that might be to the benefit of, of social movements? Well, I always have optimism. By definition, I think I'm, I call myself hopelessly optimistic because that's what it takes to be a human rights advocate in this world. Um, I, I'm encouraged by the fact that you know there's leadership in certain, certainly in in private philanthropy to embrace the idea that general operating support is important to building healthy organizations, and I think it's also freeing for supporting other kinds of actors. Um, I mean, there are, you know, going back to the conversation about social movements for a second, there are movement organizations that are often um, structured in such a way that they can bring resources in to help facilitate the work that movements are doing by doing, you know, different aspects of work that supports, um, that isn't necessarily leading demonstrations, but maybe funneling resources into training for those who are doing demonstrations or providing legal support when people get into trouble and that kind of thing. So, and certainly given the fluidity of the situations that those organizations are operating in, having general operating support is hugely important. Um, I, I go back to another example from Guatemala, uh, back when the Guatemalan human rights community was advocating for the creation of a hybrid tribunal in Guatemala that would be a collaboration between the Guatemalan justice system and the United Nations to investigate allegations of human rights abuses, corruption, and what they called the shadow powers in Guatemala, which was allegedly a collusion between uh, people in the in in the in drug running, uh, former members of the military, and those in government. And this. Um, this organization that was at the lead of those advocacy efforts received only project funding from all of its donors. It's a big organization. They had a budget of close to a million dollars a year, but it was all project funding. So when the ground shifted underneath them and there were last minute obstacles thrown in their way for the creation of this particular body, they didn't 
have the ability to adapt to that moment and do the advocacy that was needed to, to get this thing across the finish line. And so they came to us, they were a very large organization and we had not funded them traditionally, but they came to us and said, if you could give us $10,000 of core support, that will make all the difference to our ability to sustain this campaign to fruition. And that's what we did. And after we gave them that $10,000 and after they succeeded in creating that commission, they said, thank you very much. We don't need any more support because we've accomplished our goal and other organizations need it more than we do. So I, you know, I think there are, you know, I could, we could talk all day about in, instances that illustrate the point, but I do think that there is, there does seem to be greater recognition and the pandemic has helped in that res respect. Um, you know, sadly, uh, we do have to look for silver linings in this time of chaos and upheaval. And one of them is that people see that, you know, especially in our context, a number of the organizations that we fund, they are human rights actors, but they are also representatives of communities that are hard hit by the fallout from the pandemic. And so in conversation, they come to us and say, look, we've got this money from you. We want to be able to do this with it. And because our community needs healthcare, they need health information, they need access to food, um, we need to be able to pay our people. And we say, that's fine. You know what? Do, do what you need to do with the money because we know that you're you're you need to be there to deliver on the vision of your organization long after this pandemic has faded. So. I think that hopefully that that is one of the lessons that that funders will see really underscored as a consequence of this pandemic, and then others will follow the leadership that's been exhibited by actors like the Ford Foundation in recognizing that investing in organizations um, to to be strong and and to give them the discretion over how they use general operating or core support is really important to their sustainability. And we need these organizations. I think that's another thing that the pandemic has made very clear is that that powerful institutions um, are deeply, deeply flawed and often are even predatory. And if we don't have this vibrant civil society to call them out when they behave that way and to provide alternatives, including alternative solutions, then we're going to suffer um, as a result, both specific communities, but also society in general. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, just penultimate question before I, I throw my fun one was just I'm interested the focus you know, we said at the beginning there's quite a lot of focus on social movements as an idea at the moment although people have a particular view of what those are that perhaps doesn't take into account the the, the bits that are more sort of within traditional civil society but in terms of some of that focus at the moment a lot of it seems to be on movements that are in some sense kind of leaderless or have a structure where they're kind of non-hierarchical and they're not organized in anything like a traditional um, uh, kind of organizational structure have you had any interaction with organizations like that movements that are leaderless and, and what particular challenges have you found in terms of you know the practicalities of, of funding that kind of organization well I um, again I have a multi-part response to this just because the the realities are so different depending on the context but I will say that yes I think movements have emphasized being non-hierarchical and some may translate that into being leaderless but I think it's it's that's that's kind of an animating idea and a value for movements but I think it's also important to recognize that they have to function they have to they have to be organized and they have to figure out a way to get their jobs done uh, in order to pursue the the aim that they have set out for themselves. So I think that's where we look is um, what do you need? You know, what 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 is there that's happening that isn't just the the transmission of, of values and aims and the organizing of people, but what, what else is it going to take for you to be successful in achieving what you're trying to do? Do you need um, money for trainings? Um, I mean, if you look back to the civil rights movement in the United States, the people who were at the forefront of that movement, leading the marches, doing the sit-ins at the counters, they all had deep training in, in nonviolent resistance. Um, and that both gave them the skills they needed to, you know, take on very serious and, and sometimes life-threatening situations, but it also built community. So I think looking for opportunities like, you know, what else do you need that's going to help you be successful in that respect is important. Also thinking about sustaining those, those actors, um, who are coming together, whether it's collaboratively or with multiple leaders or whatever it might be, to make sure that they are able to maintain their commitment to 
the, the things that they are unleashing um, and that they don't get pulled back into, look, I can't do this anymore because I have to feed my family. I have to support my community um, and thinking about the role that donors can play there. And we've also seen that, you know, one of the things that happens in to these movements is that they get governments will try to close them down and they may harass them in various ways. They may come after them with specious legal charges and then they need legal defense. And that's another way that funders can support those leaderless movements. So it's really looking at the different actors that they're relying on to protect the space in which they're working and maybe also to build um, the elements of what they're doing that are, I mean, there are many opportunities for donors there and that's the kind of place that we've stepped in and been funding. The other thing I would say about this is, and this is a slight pivot, is that what we have been experimenting with funding those entities that are influential voices that do not look like traditional nonprofit organizations. And that may mean funding comedians who come from marginalized communities and speak local languages to talk about issues of human rights on in popular for, formats and in popular fora in ways that reach communities that traditional nonprofits never would. Or thinking about student movements or um, independent journalism or artists and how artists in, in doing their work may reach communities that would never come into contact with, again, sort of more traditional human rights organizations or even popular movements and thinking about how you broaden the constituency supporting human rights principles and values by using very non-traditional means. And that, again, those are, those are I mean, they're totally leaderless, um, but they are there are voices out there that are carrying these um, these messages and doing really exciting stuff in terms of generating conversations about these norms and values. And you know, this is where the model that we have as a funder has been so important because we hear about those organizations because our program officers are in those communities. They can reach out and talk to people and find out what their needs are uh, and then bring them back to the organization uh, so that we can get them the resources that they need. So I do think that they look sort of, uh, you know, like these leaderless movements may, from a distance, look sort of almost uncontrollable or or unmanageable. But in reality, they are embedded in a much more elaborate set of social actors and, and activism, much of which is very fundable. Yeah, your point uh, there about you're talking about funding uh, the the arts or kind of you know cultural uh, activities as a way of of driving forward some of the work movements is absolutely fascinating because I, I always feel as though it's a, a sort of underutilized tool and it always it feels to me on a lot of issues as though you know on the one side you can you can write as many thousand pages of kind of policy reports and have legal challenge and and all these sorts of things but then actually as soon as you have one piece of art that kind of crystallizes or distills an idea that's the thing that sticks with people and really kind of carries an idea forward so um i think that's really really interesting and um, i just wanted to ask one final question before I, before i let you go it's a kind of a reflection really at a at a macro level um on on the kind of the whole question of philanthropy as a tool for achieving justice or driving kind of fundamental structural reform because it, it feels as though one of the big challenges that philanthropy is sort of facing up to right now is that in many ways it's it's almost always a reflection to some extent of the systems and structures within which wealth has been created and so you know some some people might challenge that its ability to sort of fundamentally uh, undo those structures or alter them is limited it, it feels as though in the work you do it's kind of you know it's based on uh, starting out with that recognition and, and the whole approach has been structured to try and maximize your ability to sort of genuinely drive change I mean what what to you are the kind of key things that other funders could could learn from from your model if that, if that doesn't sound sort of slightly too grandiose to ask somebody to say that but but in terms of kind of how philanthropy can be used as a tool to to further justice yeah 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 grandiose and uh, self-promoting so thank you for that opportunity um <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I think actually this is a really important question and it's one, I mean, it's not like we figured it out at the beginning and have just done the same thing over and over. We've learned an enormous amount over the past 16, 17 years. And I think our most important teachers have been our grantees. And that is, um, that is something that, you know, I, 
I know you asked this question on a macro level, but I always tend to go back to the specifics because that's where I, I learn. And I think that one of the one of the central questions that philanthropy has to grapple with constantly is this question of power. And the truth of the matter is, if you have money and other people need the money, you have power and they are asking you to use that power in their best interests. And so the question is, how do you think about that in a way that's very self-aware and critical and allows for others to really feed into what you do with that power. Because in some ways, having that power for an organization like us is advantageous. We can bring those resources to the table and that benefit these organizations. And we carry, because we're an intermediary, we carry all the demands that our donors place on us and free the organizations that we support from having to carry those burdens. Um, and we also buy them some protection from that that sort of power dynamic that you were referencing at the beginning of your question about, you know, to go back to Audre Lorde's words, paraphrased, you can't dismantle the master's house using the master's tools. And I think what we as an organization, but many others who are playing a similar, similar role out there in the world are doing is, is mobilizing those resources from those fairly traditional actors and trying to put them back out in the world in a way that is much less traditional. And are there limits to that model? Of course there are. Um, and I often wonder, you know, philanthropy is limited. It's there are finite resources that are going to express themselves in the world as philanthropy. And I also think that philanthropy um, has always been sort of small C conservative in how it's approached the work that it does. Even those philanthropies that style themselves as progressive have had um, historically a fairly conservative way of operating. And so, it's fair to ask how much can we expect the work that those organ that those entities fund to be transformational and i think we may be learning some very important lessons from the way intermediaries function about what is possible if you free the resources from the restraints that power might place on them. So what am, I, what am I trying to say? Well, I think that if you look at something like participatory grant making, which you uh, referenced in one of your earlier questions, that's really, we're doing um, some initial work with participatory grant making in Sierra Leone, funding children's rights, children and youth rights, where we are bringing together young people from across Sierra Leone, supported by a local um, organization that does this kind of work, to make decisions about what kinds of uh, groups that are not working on children's rights, but that are led by young people that are advancing the interests of young people, identifying which organizations should be receiving resources and then thinking about why. And it's amazing the conversations that they have about what they expect and the, and the, 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 seriousness with which they take this opportunity. And I think participatory grant making really scared people and probably does still scare some people. And there are all kinds of, you know, serious uh, rationales for why that's not a good idea. Oh, it's so expensive. And, um, and aren't, wouldn't it be a problem for local actors to become gatekeepers to resources? Well, these are all problems around which we can find solutions. And I think, I think, it, I think that's, um, that's something that I, would say is important for bigger donors to grapple with is how can we, if we are serious about supporting social change, if we want to move the resources into the hands of local actors so that they can build stronger civil society and social movements that will create societies that function better for the citizens that, that work there, that are less prone to abuse, um, abusive governments and abusive actors, that create greater access to resources for all people who live there um, that reduce inequality and injustice. If that's something that we're serious about, we have to be serious about recognizing the power that we have and thinking about ways to shift that power elsewhere, which ultimately involves trust and letting go. And that's really hard for people who believe that they come from a, who come from a place and then believe that one of their responsibilities is to show that they made the difference. And I think that's maybe another thing for philanthropy to think about is how much 
philanthropic actors have encouraged competition between organizations in, in the race to get resources rather than fostering collaboration between organizations to build collaborative civil society and social movements. And that's, I, I would say, something else that I've really learned is that to the extent that you can get away from fostering competition between organizations by saying, you need to show me how you contributed to this win um, rather than show me the collaboration that you participated in that um, actually achieved something for or the people that you're um, working with, you know, those are those are important questions too. So I think it's really unpacking power in ways that are more significant than just calling your grantees your partners. That was something that organizations started doing 20 years ago without actually having the conversation about power. Now we're going to have the conversation about power because the moment demands it and the movements are demanding it. And I think that. Um, organizations, big, powerful actors can can participate in that conversation, but without expecting to have all the answers and by listening to the organizations who need the resources for that transformational change. What a great optimistic note on which to leave things. And I absolutely, absolutely agree. I think those are some really kind of key things that can be be taken from from the work that you uh, you do and have been doing um, that can kind of inform others. Um, look, it just remains to say thanks ever so much for finding the time to come on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure, an absolutely fascinating conversation, certainly for me. Um, and, you know, uh, perhaps further down the line in a, in a year or so's time, uh, I could twist your arm to get you to come on again and we could catch up and see how things have developed. I would be delighted. This has been really interesting. I spend so much time thinking about how to do this work um, in ways that are just about delivering the resources and making a difference that having the opportunity to have this big picture conversation and think about where we sit in these bigger and incredibly important conversations. Um, it's a real it's a it's a really thought provoking opportunity for me to I really appreciate the quality of the questions and the conversation. So thank you. Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to Regan for coming on the show. It was absolutely great to have a chance to talk to her. I thought it was a really fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I'll put links in the show notes to various things that you can pick up on about the work that Regan's doing there at the Fund for Global Human Rights and some bits and pieces that I've written on similar subjects to do with funding social movements. Uh, if you're interested more broadly in thoughts and writing and podcasts and whatever about philanthropy and civil society, do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis or at Philiteracy if you like stuff more about kind of history and writing about philanthropy. Uh, if you've got ideas for people we could talk to on the podcast or themes that we could look into, uh, drop us a line at givingthought@cafonline.org. Other than that, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about it, leave us a nice review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next time. Bye!